As I sit here at the beginning of 2024, it's January, we just got our first snowstorm of the year up here in northern Vermont. There is so much that's causing my heart to break these days. I don't think I need to tell you that. But I'm also really trying to spend a lot of time sitting with all that's bringing me great hope. So I wanted to start the year by bringing you conversations from folks that are not only thinking deeply about how we create a better possible world, but who are actually practicing that. If you know even a little bit about my work, it's probably obvious that I spend a lot of time thinking and dreaming about world building, and specifically building worlds of interdependence, regeneration, and care. I want to linger on that term a second, world building, because it's one I use a lot. And maybe it's not that clear what that means. Worlds are complex systems. They are made up of relationships and encompass far more than I can ever imagine myself. To me, world building involves creativity and imagination, an opportunity to think and dream outside of what we know, and also contending with all the messiness of systems and people, the dishes and the dust bunnies. Today, I bring you a very rich and complex conversation with Sarah Raihanan of Saipua and World's End School of Thought, Agriculture, and Craft. Before I introduce Sarah, I actually want to read from World's End School's website because these questions perfectly frame our conversation. How do we make our small corner of the world healthier, more fulfilling, and more fun? How do we share what we know and inspire people to engage in world-building experiments that might provide alternatives to current systems, which no longer serve our needs and desires? How do we learn to notice the immediate physical world around us, locate ourselves in its complex cycles, and practice tending to relationships with people, plants, animals, and earth? Sarah has been a huge inspiration for me in her own world-building practices and is one of those people I've been following on the internet for ages. I grew up next door to my florist grandmother and have a particular affinity for flower people. I first discovered Sarah years ago when she was living in Brooklyn as an industry-leading florist. Many seasons later, she now lives in rural upstate New York on World's End Farm, the home of Saipua, a soap company she runs with her mother Susan and World's End School of Thought, Agriculture, and Craft, a newly launched communally organized intergenerational school. I started by asking Sarah to tell me about Saipua and World's End in their current forms, and perfectly, she started by telling me about the land. So would you talk about what Saipua and World's End Farm look like in their current forms? Yeah, so I'm looking out at it right now from what I call my princess tower, which is really just my office in the main farmhouse, which is um, the farm was built in 1825. So I live now in the main farmhouse Um, and I'm looking out at what we call lower campus. Sometimes we refer to it as lower Egypt. Um, The farm is 107 acres and on lower campus that I'm looking out on right now, I see Um, a very large barn, which is actually two barns kind of put together um, that were originally built for livestock and farming in the 1860s. They were built around 1840 to 1860. Uh, But we have renovated since into a giant sort of teaching mess hall space. And then a separate, uh, the other side of the barn is what we call the communal living barn, which is 
essentially a giant kitchen, bathrooms, and a library and uh, sleeping quarters, four bedrooms. Um, and then I can see the soap factory if I look lean a little bit further, which is a small building where we make and ship all of our soap and body oils. And then a garage where we keep all of our wood, our wood shop and tools. And that's all I can see from this. And then up behind me on the other half of the farm is um, our growing space. So we have about three acres in production of vegetables and flowers. Uh, we have a high tunnel greenhouse uh, where we grow right now. We're harvesting uh, winter greens out of there, kale, arugula, spinach. And then our flock of Icelandic sheep are up there. And right now they're in a permanent enclosure outside of a barn getting fed hay for the winter and a chicken coop with eight old laying hens. So that's it. How do the various um, structures, like let's say economic structures, ways that uh, exchange happen on top of all of that land? Like you've got some things that are businesses, some things that are not businesses, some things that might be format that still facilitates exchange but outside of sort of commerce and things like that like i'm trying i want to get a sense of sort of the like where do we get money from where do you get money from but also beyond that because a lot of what you're doing is considering forms beyond monetary transactions or mm -hmm. that kind of commerce so i want to kind of like wanted to use the land as a way to sort of into, okay, what else is happening in terms of exchange and structure and learning and all of the, the various forms of production that are happening? Well, maybe a good way to sort of lay that out, since I'm so always entrenched in the material world, yeah. um, is what a day looks like. Oh, I love that. And, yeah. and who the people are who are yeah. interacting in relationship with the land. And yeah, engaging in all kinds of different processes here, right? Um, one of the things I forgot to mention is all living quarters that are not that communal living barn. So my parents have a house on the other side of the farm, and then there's five cabins where staff live. And those cabins are dotted all the way around the farm. And so in the wintertime today on December 18th, uh, there's like maybe five cars in the driveway, and there's about six people who are living here in the wintertime. And every day at breakfast, we... I mean, I could we could spend this entire podcast talking about communal living, but breakfast uh, in the wintertime meals tend to be on. Everyone takes meals on their own, so they kind of interact sometimes at breakfast. And there is a chore schedule, so the animals get fed, sheep get fed hay, guardian dogs get fed, chickens get fed. Um, we have a weekly meeting where we discuss ins and outs and just farm maintenance kind of stuff. And then another weekly meeting where we discuss uh, visitor schedules. And then, of course, the soap factory is constantly shipping out. And now it's the holidays. So we've just been bonkers sort of shipping out yeah. soap. The work is so different depending on what time of year you zoom into this place. But right now we're in sort of that solstice time where like everything is just creaking down and the chores and maintenance of this place could literally maybe take, you know, one person an hour a day. So there's a lot of rest that's happening yeah. amongst the other five or six people here. William, who's sort of my right hand, spends a lot of time in his cabin. <laughs> I noticed lately, I don't know, doing what, resting, sleeping, reading. Um, our farmer, Mark, who's in charge of the agriculture program, comes in sometimes only two or three times a week. Um, besides the soap factory, which is very busy with two people, I think that we're sort of in that. We're just coming down off of what was a, a really long season. 
And, you know, financially speaking, if you want to just, I'll dip a toe into that really quick. This place has been sustained by soap sales. Our soap company was started in 2008, and that's been a through line through the whole program of the farm. And also floristry work, which I've been doing on and off for the last 15 years. And more and more as World Zen has become its own educational center, nonprofit organization, now we're relying more on essentially selling classes and residencies and collecting money from donors to support the work of the farm. So the idea has been to extricate Saipua from World's End. That will be a, a very long, sort of tedious process. Yeah, I talk a lot about like one foot in a new world, one foot in an old world, and very much so like we are putting diesel in our tractor, gas in our cars. Some of us take vacations. You know, like we get money by selling soap and floral design classes. Sometimes I'll do a wedding. And then we also talk constantly about new value systems. And I think the beautiful thing about a land-based business is that you just spend six months in a land-based business or a land-based project or a land-based living scenario, and you start to see all kinds of different economies all around you. And that really yep. helps, I think, to sort of imagine a new future where we don't have the kind of economy that we're used to. You know, as we were talking about, I live in rural Vermont now. I used to live in Philly. You used to have your empire in Brooklyn and you mentioned going into a land-based business, and I think about this a lot, like being in super rural Vermont, like the economy works differently. I think there's some overlap and some stuff that stays the same. But, you know, what I notice about being in such a rural place is that the lineages are very patchwork. There have been long lineages of overlapping types of economies and like lots of gifting and lots of bartering and lots of like people just having various types of work that they're doing to make a living. And I'm wondering if that imprint makes sense in terms of how you're formulating like the whole campus. Like there's all these different pieces that are kind of uh, supporting in different balances and ways in this project as you've been evolving it. And I guess what, what's the imprint of sort of the rural economics and doing business in that context? One thing that's really important to note is that where we are in Montgomery County, New York, Mohawk Valley is very different than where where you're describing. Sure. I mean, Montgomery County is one of the poorest counties in New York State. Most of my neighbors are retired veterans who live government paycheck to paycheck. Um, there is um, not a lot of small farms at all around here. Most of the tracts of land are hundreds of acres, and the, this area was settled by colonizers in eight, around like the beginning of the 19th century. And um, the soil, the land is, is really suited to dairy farming. And so that mm -hmm. is um, really what kind of took off in the 20th century. And so now that because of the state of the dairy uh, industry in the United States, which is completely decrepit and awful, so much of the quote farming and this not quote, I mean, it is farming, is farming hay that gets sold to fancy horse farms down in Long Island, down, you know, in, in more um, wealthy areas. So yeah. farms are constantly being sold and subdivided for what we call like rural residential homes, people commuting from Albany. So we're about yeah. um, three miles west of Albany. I don't see a lot of that sort of nice sounding patchwork of lineages. Um, I mean, what I do have is we inherited a handful of hunters when we bought 
this property in 2011. It came with two retired guys who had been hunting it for, I don't know, 18 years. And so, I, you know, they asked if they could continue to hunt here. And so they do. When I have tried to engage with them about um, what we're up to here, they're curious, but there's a big divide in terms of, um, you know, they don't believe in climate change, for one okay. thing. They love to really goad me on that, even if we just run into each other on the backwoods. Um, you know, a conversation just like about the weather will like immediately track that way. Um, I think they think that I'm, you know, like city money, which is like not untrue. In the last 10 years, I've done a lot of work to sort of delicately work with my neighbors and community. And it's an ongoing challenge. You know, what my closest yeah. neighbor is a woman who told me she was pro-choice. You had a choice when you open your legs, she said. And, you know, before the Trump era, we had this rule that we just like wouldn't talk politics with our neighbors. And then I think since... Then I've decided like, okay, I have to engage with about politics. How am I going to do that? And, you know, the way that we do that is slowly with trust. I mean, we also share a community here, so we do it slowly a little bit at a time. No, I totally know what you mean. And I, I think where we are, like the Northeast Kingdom is sort of the poorest, most rural, weirdest part of the state. So it tracks a little bit differently than like the utopia of Vermont that people think about. There are some larger operations and stuff like that, but it's really, there's a lot of poverty and a lot of sort of older folks that are living on their benefits and stuff like that for sure. But there has the like encroachment of these sort of like giant buyouts and Mm -hmm. kind of what you're describing, I don't think has quite happened yet, hopefully ever. One of my neighbors who was so instrumental in helping us like understand, I mean, I I grew up in the suburbs, so when we bought the farm, but I love to work hard. So that's really all you need to know is if you're going to start a farm, you just like, have to like to work hard and if the rest yeah. of it run on the internet. And so much of it, you just have to learn by doing. But buying a tractor, learning how to use a tractor was one of the hardest things I've ever done for lots of different weird reasons. But this neighbor was really helpful. His dad was also very helpful. You know, they're like third, fourth generation dairymen. Finally, the son, who's my age, who has eight children. No, he's younger than me and has eight children. Sold off all of his heifers and went to work at the Target Distribution Center. Makes $20 an hour on the night shift. That's really so much of the work I feel like of this place is like how do we yeah. how do we like find common ground um, around some of these things? Our restaurant project, the Coyote Cafe, that happens every Sunday here, came about because I was like, all right, well, we need to start getting our neighbors to come to the farm and see what we're up to, instead of you know driving by and being like, oh, there's that lesbian witch cult, you know, or whatever they think. And I code switch all the time here too, which yep. mixed feelings about, but I do so like. When one of them drives up the driveway, I'll say, you know, oh, we're trying to like teach people about how, you know, your grandmother might have run a small farm. So I kind of use very specific language. I don't know if that's yep. a thing or a bad thing. I just noticed that I do it in order to sort of keep the peace. I'm great at that. That's a great leadership skill. Actually, I think when you run a communal living situation is keeping the peace. But, you know, even what we serve in the Coyote Cafe is a way that we're thinking about how do we bridge these gaps, right? Because, you know, having lived in New York City for 15 years, I have like a lot of things that I like to eat and grow, you know, radicchio, all kinds of like weird bitter greens. Like my neighbors eat pasta salad and hamburgers, which is delicious. I mean, I love that too. So, but it's it's like, okay, well, what, how are we talking about 
vegetables with them. How you know a lot of them don't eat lamb, so that's like a whole thing. I think that work is the most important political work that we can do. Actually, yeah, so much、um, hand wringing about all the injustices around the world. I'm always trying to encourage people to like. Not not pay attention to that, but like how what are we doing day to day? Even in our nuclear families, even in our relationships, like how are we working those politics out? Because I think that there that has a reverberating effect that's really important. I often think that the actual work of sort of I don't know what you know. I always am trying to find the right terminology, and I never have it. Of like. Future world vision, holding new possibility—you know, like whatever it is we're trying to do. Which maybe the simplest way is just like survive in a better way or evolve. That's what evolve. We do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Evolve into something that isn't so destructive. Any of these things, and I often think like the actual work of that of. Those of us that are thinking about engaging with these topics is really just like tension, engaging and contradiction holding. Yeah, and sort of always, as he said, like be you know one foot in, one foot out in the next world and things like that, which is so much of what you're describing in a way of like just being in your community.、Um, if that resonates, what other kinds of contradictions feel most alive as you're moving into evolution? Well, the big one that's up for us right now is we're、um, restructuring the way that we work as a team here. So in the past, I've been the leader, the boss. I've been that for a long time. We're trying to undo some of the knotting around hierarchy on our team and moving towards a worker-directed nonprofit that doesn't have a typical hierarchy structure. And even as I say that out loud, I have a lot of hesitations about whether it will work. I already have experienced a lot of like strangeness around it. I think there was this Esther Perel episode that was so important that I listened to a few months ago, where she was like, "Hierarchy is always going to exist in social dynamics." She was like, "Anytime you have a two-year-old in the room." You realize that there's a hierarchy there. In other words, that two-year-old's needs come before a lot of other needs, right? That two-year-old cannot take care of itself, so there is a natural hierarchy. I thought to myself, that's so important because I think up until that point, I was always like, oh, we're going to break down the hierarchy, break down the hierarchy, but that's like really not what we're trying to do. I think what we are trying to do as a team is. Practice mutual aid together, and I talk about this with them all the time. I feel like until I'm blue in the face, and some of them I think get it, some of them don't. But essentially, what that is is being able to come together as a team, running this project, living this life, and say, okay, what do I need from it right now, and what can I do for it, and and what do I need to get from it? Also, practicing being radically honest with that is the only way that it's going to work. So hard. What's it's so hard, and I use <laughs> this example all the time. It's really important, and especially when you start to talk about money and like how much do you want, how much does each of us want to be compensated, and knowing that those compensations are going to change, you know. So, for example, I'm a person who really I work so hard, but I also like a lot of luxury, and they know this about me. We've been together for a long time, but I think some years I might come to the table and be like, I need more right now. And I need to be able to say that I need to be vulnerable in order to say I've been wanting a vintage Jaguar since I was 21. 
I'm 43. This is the year I really want to get it. You guys know this about me. Can you help me get what I want? Can we work together? And I use that vintage Jaguar as a joke, but it's not a joke. I really do want that. And, you know, I'm I'm not messing around when I say like we have to be serious about our desires. And, you know, it can be material yeah. things. It can be money. It could also be time off. Some people might want to travel for a year. Some people might want to leave the project altogether, not knowing if they're going to want to come back. Some yeah. people might want to build a cabin for themselves that looks different from the cabins that we have now. So like really being able to even just projecting your desires and needs for like the season yeah. and being honest with that is the only way that we can start to form a different way of working where I don't decide what what is good for everybody. Because right. in the past, that's sort of how it, how it worked, right? And in any kind of like business structure, usually you have somebody whose vision it is and you get you get people to join you based on your vision but then you guide that vision right and i think as a boss sometimes you're like oh no i want to hear what you guys have to say and but honestly that's gotten me into more trouble in my businesses than anything else because and this is where you're you were asking okay where's the contradiction so if those five people come to the table everybody has to be able to you know ask for what they want etc the thing is is that not everybody knows what they want because right. not everybody has the same kind of leadership brain that I do. And right. so the contradiction is, you know, remembering that some people may not be able to participate like that. And so this idea that I have might crumble next season. I don't know. So right. we're going to try it, you know, and we're going to see how it goes. And we might go back to, um, as one of my former partners once used to call me the benevolent dictator model. I've called myself that too. <laughs> This partner of mine, who's a dear friend now, who helped me run the farm for a few years, her name is Zoe. She always would, and she's a, a Leo, just like me, big personality, big leader skills. But she was like, I just like when you make the decisions. You know, you and I could talk about this till we're blue in the face with our business experience. But like one of the most exhausting things about being the leader is that you're just fucking tired of making every fucking decision. Yep. And so, you know, at my personal juncture with this project 15 years in or whatever, having also just come through, you know, a breast cancer season where everything was like nutso, I'm like, I don't want to make all the decisions anymore. So I've said this over and over again to them and we'll see <laughs> how it goes. I, I mean, well, it's, it's easier said than done. I mean, so I've worked with so many folks in this realm of like, how do you shift power? How do you shift decision making? How do you go, move from being the leader, the vision, the person that's like used to looking out ahead? Like I look about, I think about hierarchy, about sort of viewpoints sometimes, like who's looking out furthest. And that's sort of a less, I don't know, frictive way of looking at or patriarchal way of looking at power. You know, I think that Jaguar is really important though, because you know, a lot of where people get stuck is that it's almost like trying to limit uh, people's desires and things like that, because that's the path to equality. Like if we could all just be wearing gray jumpsuits and, uh, you know, equally impoverished, then we'll figure this out together. And that's never true, because there's no joy in that anyway. But you also point to something that's just so difficult, though, which is that like when something seems frivolous or outlandish or like luxury and you're trying to collectively figure that out together, 
it kicks up sort of, I think, all this productive dust around what are we actually trying to do here? Like, are we trying to be collectively kind of sad and miserable? Or are we trying to be collectively thriving and enjoying our lives and like having luxury, whatever that looks like, even if it's travel or, you know, a nice, a car, like that can manifest in so many different ways, but it's not often supported. Yeah. I mean, two things I think I want to pull out from what you just said. One, it is so entrenched and ingrained in our bodies, capitalism. So we kind of pick at it a little here. We pick at it a little there. You know, this kind of organization, this kind of collective farm communal living scenario is antithetical to the last three generations of Americans. I still... this is so embarrassing, but I'm going to say it. I mean, I've, you know, I grew up in a shopping mall, right? I mean, I grew up in the suburbs. And so my first experience of pleasure really was in a shopping mall. And for a long time, like as a young sexual being, I would, when I would orgasm, I would have flashes of the interior of the the shopping mall that I used to go to as a child. Like this is how my like your center is in terms yeah. of capitalism and, and shopping. It's foolish to think that we're going to strip that out of any right. of it. So I think we kind of stick with it a little bit and we shake it a little over here and then we do a little of this over here. And there's this pastiching, hopefully, that happens until like one day, maybe three generations from now, we're in a very different looking world than we are today. The most important thing for us here, besides being able to express what we need as individuals from our work in the project, is making sure that year after year, season after season, we are able to practice our art, our craft, our work in a way that is completely fulfilling, or at least aims to be completely fulfilling. So we do not grow beautiful vegetables and beautiful lamb and focus on these interspecies relationships and have beautiful dinners for people to sell it to them. We do it for ourselves first and foremost. And that is the most important guiding principle of this place. I don't make wool because I want to teach other people how to make it. I make it because I love to make beautiful wool garments for myself. I like to have sheep because I love the experience for myself. If we're always doing that, creating beautiful lives for ourselves, then that is so anti-capitalist, isn't it? Right. Well, that's how you get out of the commodity loop, like where you're just trying to commodify everything. Yeah. You know, it's exciting when we talk about it you know, when I'm sure they talk about it from my princess tower with you here on the internet. Yeah. And then when we go down into the trenches, it's like a little bit more complicated. But I think um, that is really so important is like the beautiful, the beauty that we sell here, that whole idea, the teaching, all of it has to be first and foremost for ourselves. Where are your edges around uh, divesting from your own leadership? Because I think about this with myself all the time. Like, as I said, I've called myself a benevolent dictator before. And I'm totally projecting right now, but like for me, that divestment to like giving other people decision-making power and stuff like that, it's not that easy when you're used to being that guiding force all the time and the person that's kind of out in front. And maybe that's not your experience, but um, but I'm curious about where your edges are in terms of making this shift to a more collective model. Right now, it's a practice for me. I think, um, one, I've always been great at delegating. I think where it gets sticky sometimes is um, asking someone to be a leader when they're not a leader. 
or asking someone to have power when they're not interested in power, sort of going back to what we talked about before. Um, one of the things that's happened here this this season, which was 2023, was such a chaotic one for us because I was, you know, fighting cancer. There there was a leadership vacuum for a long time, and the core staff that like supported me here, they wanted to rise to the occasion, but they also like just didn't have the skill set. So there was like, um, we kind of backed our way into this like very awkward season of like who was in charge. So in, in yeah. some ways, that was like a good trial run for us. to the economic stuff because I've been curious about I think you landed on a nonprofit format for the farm if you could wave your magic mod would all of would all of the various pieces of the world the soap the farm would this all like come under the same umbrella or would you actually be wanting to structure and kind of tease it out into different pieces sort of back to this this contradiction thread of uh I also roll my eyes at nonprofits often as sort of like an unsatisfying structure for trying to evolve or like, you know, have better forms of uh, containers to hold the types of economies that we need to, we want to build. So I'm curious, like, if you, you know, start to look out further, like with where do you hope this project goes? What would you hope that this evolves into? If you were going to start to step further into that evolution? Well, I think the vision that I have looking far out, and I loved your idea about like some people can look far out and some people can look right in front of them. And and I actually, incidentally, I think both are of equal value. This is what we talk about, the difference between equality and equity, which is you know yep. another conversation. But um, assuming that then that's the kind of world that I definitely want to live in. So like my ability to maybe be a leader or like look long term is the same as the person who can plot along like one of my farmers is so slow and steady and like we need each other right but i see world's end in the in my vision as first of all i think land-based businesses are the transition i think that when you get a business that's like making money you know whatever your profit and losses your income taxes all of that is happening and you're based in a very particular situated piece of land in a very particular place and you start to understand 
that resources are limited, that is how we're going to break out of an old business world into a different kind of value system. And so I see World Zen in a future, ideally, as being one of many land-based businesses that are connected in a web that start to need the old world less and less. Mm-hmm. So when you ask what is the container, this is like just grassroots stuff where it's like if we could light a hundred little fires and then connect them, we won't even be asking this question in a hundred years. What's the business structure? That won't be relevant. And I think that's really that's my answer. No, I love that. I think that's where I get caught up sometimes of like even asking these kinds of questions because it's like the even the language yeah. doesn't make sense. So let's just not use the language. Let's not ask those questions. I mean, certainly like I do have an accountant. I have a profit and loss. And, um, you know, assuming that we can keep that sort of engine running, that we can do this other work out here, which is, you know, what really gets me excited. What would you let go of that's currently a part of your projects that you're doing to make things work, but not doesn't necessarily feel like it fits totally in the new value system or that you know, fits into that new better world. Like if money was no object? Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have like a big soap online retail wholesale business. I don't find it particularly interesting. I mean, our soap is incredible. My mom makes it, some of it. Um, We also use a factory upstate New York to make a bulk of it, make the bulk of it. But I'm not like jazzed about cosmetics, give two fucks about cosmetics. You know, but I think that a lot of pro- I, sometimes we, you know, there's always something that cults or uh, we're not a cult, but I think cults are interesting to look at because they exist outside of norms, right? And they always yep. have to have something that they sell bread or like they make yep. a thing and they sell it in order to like do their w- weird, dirty work over here. So yeah. for us, I've just been like, okay, well, we're just going to keep making this soap. And, and the beautiful thing I think now, because I've, We've worked really hard. I mean, we have authenticity in spades as a business, right? Like people see my parents delivering the packages. We're all making it like they they really I've I've got a really amazing core group of supporters who buy the product and I could, you know, essentially say anything that I want and be completely transparent about what we're doing. And it just actually helps sell it better, which I feel like is such a powerful place to be as a business. I bought soap for my holiday presents. You did? I'm sending, I did. Oh, wow. I'm sending some to Brazil next Great. week with my girlfriend. Did it smell good when you opened the box? Oh, yeah. My partner came in and was like, our room smells amazing right now. And I was like, it's the soap. Yeah, it's the soap. No, I mean, I understand what you mean. And I, I think the cult thing is actually really interesting because it's so true. Like, I use the word utopia kind of tongue in cheek at the beginning, but like when you're trying to imagine, you know, that's part of what cults are doing is sort of creating their own yeah. universes. And there's all sorts of problems with the like charismatic leader and what they're actually doing that are very different from what you're doing. But I think the connection and the through line is still having to have some sort of, you know, tie to capitalism, really, and tie to how do we generate a lot of revenue and how do we still pay our salaries and how do we Mm -hmm. Buy all of the things we still need to buy because we don't have that network yet, as you're describing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I got it. I mean, I don't know. I've just had a a large coffee and I feel very like optimistic in this moment. But I think people spend a lot of time complaining about capitalism. Certainly, it's it's awful. 
in a lot of ways. It's also incredible in a lot of ways. And so like, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, you know, for better or worse, we have like put people on the moon. We have incredible Western medicine. That's like I'm newfound admirer of. And, you know, now it's maybe just time for something different, but like, let's go ahead and use some of those tools. And when you think about, when I think about money, it's like, okay, I want to get this much in order to do this thing. What can I do to get this much? Then it's just, you know, a, a tool in your toolkit. Exactly. Yeah. Let's not confuse money with inequality mm. and the the ways that money moves through the economy right now in ways that like are harmful with how that can actually be refunneled or redistributed or moved differently. Well, tell me what you think about this, but when we when we talk about inequality in capitalism, what we're talking about is accumulation problems. Yep. Yep. When I think about, you know, okay, change, evolution, what are we here on the planet to do? At least evolve. That's what we do. I like to envision a place where as humans, we evolve to not need greed, where we don't feel the need for accumulation in the same way that we have. Yep. And yep. that is very hopeful, I think. Yeah. Which goes back to the jaguar. <laughs> Except my jaguar. <laughs> I'm going to keep coming back to this because I think, I think the vintage jaguar is really important because it's like, how do you plan for that in an economy that you're trying to not, you know, divest from greed, divest from accumulation? It doesn't mean that you don't get to have things. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think, especially in you know liberal circles there's so much shaming around mm-hmm. certain things and then hiding it which is just fucking garbage like like what that doesn't do anybody any good you know yep. i think we are allowed to want what we want and have our I, I think people are really out of touch with a sense of desire myself included sometimes like you know yeah. really being in touch with what you desire is requires a lot of work to for inspiration, learning, other models right now? Uh, well, I've, I've just been reading a lot of fiction, actually, which is the first for me. I have been on a nonfiction thing for years. I feel like I just do all kinds of serious reading, and I've just had a bunch of, just had a vacation with a lot of um, fiction, oh, yeah. which has been really nice. Donna Haraway is a big one for me. I think we've discussed that or that came across in an email. Yeah. I mean, I would say she is the number one um thinker that I look to. Rosie Brandati is another one that I've been reading a lot lately. She talks a lot about posthumanism, which I think is really important. Like um the or new way to look at the world and our experience in it in relationship with all kinds of other beings and species. Um what else have I been looking at? Um I'm trying to read Hannah Arendt right now, which is not going so great. Have you read her at all? No, I have not made the big yeah. 
the big effort. Actually, probably what I could really use is a reading group for that, because I think doing that kind of reading alone is hard. Oh, you know what? Another book has been very influential um, for me this year is David Abrams' um, Spell of the Sensuous. I don't know that. He was a sleight-of-hand magician who essentially became a naturalist and an anthropologist and went around the world um, working with various indigenous cultures and medicine men in various indigenous cultures. And he writes very beautifully about the importance of like bringing us ourselves down into the senses and the sensual world, which I think is powerful magic. When I can get myself down into my senses and when I can encourage other people to get down into their senses, I think a lot of things start to loosen up. That's how we find desire. Yeah. Right? I think maybe. I don't know. I, I, the desire one is a big question mark for me because I, um, I, I, I really am struggling with what I desire right now. I've been working really hard for 15 years and I am a worker, but I, I maybe need to not work so hard, but I'm not really sure how to do that or if I want to do that. And I think, well, maybe I'll know what I really desire if I don't work so hard, but then I don't really. And so that I'm in a big sort of Ouroboro yeah. with that one right now. Um, but I like that you say that that's how we get to know our desires. I think certainly it's how we get to know ourselves. Right. Is yeah. when we when we're not in this world of like For media, sure. computer learning and we're just alone in, you know, nature yeah. the word I try not to use, but when we're in our animal bodies, we get to know a little bit yeah. about ourselves. Yeah. I think I think it's just it's not a thinking activity. Yeah. Perhaps. I think you're right, but I am such a thinker and my same is always like, same. get out same. of your head, come down into your body. And I'm always like, how do I do that? If somebody could just yeah. tell me how to do that, yeah. you know? One of my healers, every time I see her, she's like, oh, your head's like way floating up here. There's a little string connected and that's about it. Yeah. Like, all right, I'll work on that. Gosh, I feel like... Maybe- We're not bashing thinking. Yes, that's what I mean to say, yes. right? Is yeah. like, um, yeah. Yeah. We're so quick to be like, oh, I shouldn't be like that. Or I need to be no. more like this, no. you know? No. Yeah. What's emerging at World's End in 2024? Oh, that's a good one. Um, and an easy one. So we are really working on a class schedule that has um a lower, um, cheaper classes. That's the big that's the really the big push for us for our season cool. in 2024. So many of the classes that we have been teaching have been exclusive in that they're expensive because this is an expensive place to run. So um, we are working on a series of classes that are like a th- um, weekend classes that are a few hours long that where the, you know, those classes will be like less than $200 each as opposed to those like week long residency programs, which are a little bit much more expensive. We're putting together a schedule where it's just like anything goes like I'm going to do like a shepherding 101 class for three hours. So um, Mark will do a composting 101 class. Susan will do soap making 101. And then I want other teachers coming in teaching all kinds of weird stuff, very cheap, affordable classes. People always get fed the same meal, soup and bread, opening up access for people to come and explore the campus and maybe just have like a spark of some curiosity that maybe sets them off on a different trajectory. So I think that is another way that we talk a lot 
hear about our model of education is not necessarily like, oh, you know, I'm going to teach teach you, Kate, everything that you need to know about animal husbandry. That's right. not really what I'm after. I'm more like, why don't you come with me while I do chores and you might like it or you might not. And my experience with people here is people be like, you know, they just fall in love with something or they like grab onto one thing that we do here and then they want to take that in a direction. And I think that is a very generous way of educating is to just open up access and see where people, what they cling on to. That's how everything happened in my life in terms of my, I fell in love with flowers because I was given a very special bouquet and then I like couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I had to get more. And so it was just like that access, that spark. And the same thing with sheep. I stopped at a cheese farm in Vermont with Susan in 2010 and we were just going to pick up some sheep's milk ricotta and the daughter of the farmer, we were like standing in this little farm store and she was like, you want to see the sheep in the back? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I walked out back with her and the dog, the herding dog slipped out accidentally. And she was like, oh, nuts, you know, whatever. And I didn't think anything of it. So we were like wandering in this field and then these hundreds of sheep start like coming towards us because the dog just was like, right. herding dog will just go bring you the sheep. And I was like, I thought I was going to die. I was like, oh my God, what do we do? And I like looked at her panicked and she was like, just stand still. And they all, all the sheep like moved around us. It was such a magical experience. I was like, whatever this is, I'm going to have this in my life one day. Thanks for listening to this Boss Talks edition of Whiskey Fridays. Check the show notes for links to Saipua and World End, as well as Sarah's reading recommendations. As always, you can find me, Kate Tyson, at wanderwellconsulting.com and at katetyson.substack.com. Music today, I am thrilled to say, is by my friend Billy Dufala. And till next time, see ya. See ya.